0: A particularly significant discussion is underway across our country. In the coming year or so, Australians will be asked to make a very important decision. Last Thursday, the Prime Minister said he wants Australians to concentrate on the Voice to Parliament proposal rather than on any potential republic. He's making good on his pre-election promise to sponsor a referendum for The Voice, and he's now appointed a 21-person group to preside (coughs) over a grassroots campaign for a yes vote. Now, there's a long way to go. There's a lot of precise detail we don't yet know. There are supporters and there are detractors who've raised concerns about potential problems they see. What we'd like to do today is to coolly canvas, to clarify, some of the questions being raised so far with two constitutional legal specialists. I'm pleased to welcome Cheryl Saunders from the University of Melbourne, a long-respected commentator on constitutional matters, and Greg Craven, who until last year was vice-chancellor of the Australian Catholic University and whose academic life began in constitutional law. They're both emeritus professors. Both have been involved to a small degree with The Voice in their roles, but I think can objectively answer some of these key questions. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Geraldine. And, and I'm, Hello, Greg. Um, I'm, Hi. I'm going to pose the same questions to you both because I, I want to hear your specific responses. So the three proposed sentences are, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. That voice may make representations to Parliament and the Executive Government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Third, the Parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Now, first to you, Cheryl Sanders, are they the right sentences?
1: Well, I don't think these are the final sentences anyway, Geraldine. Um, that was uh, the observation of the Prime Minister at Gama. Um, but when I heard them, I thought they were pretty good. Um... They are very neat, they're very clean, they fit with the style of the constitution uh, and they do the three things that uh, the constitutional provision needs to do, uh, provides for the voice to come into existence, uh, provides a very brief description of its functions, what it's there for uh, and then empowers the parliament to pass legislation to um, provide the detail now, that's quite a neat scheme and pretty economical.
0: Right. And the sequence is, that's the sequence. They they might propose something that Parliament then acts upon.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. Okay. Parliament or the executive government, for that matter. Greg, how do you see it?
2: Look, I think Cheryl's right. These haven't been put up as having been carved in stone. So there's uh, a lot of room to manoeuvre. Um, You'd certainly have to say the first and the third paragraphs are utterly unexceptionable. The second paragraph, it's not a question of whether it's right or wrong. It's a question of uh, what degree of argument and destabilising argument will there be. So there, there is an issue about the second one, which you can come down to yes or no. It's very broad, so it says basically any legislation, any executive action. Uh, There will be some people who will argue either that it should be confined in some way uh, to legislation rather than executive action, uh, confined to actions that are particularly relevant uh, to Indigenous people. And then then there'll best be no people who hate the whole thing. But there is that issue to be gone through, the wits, if you like.
0: Okay. So... um Flesh out, if you would, that make representation. Does it make it an advisory group only? Uh, Is that different from what we currently know and understand, Cheryl?
1: Yes. uh, I mean, look, it's interesting that you've honed in on that, um, Geraldine. It's um, quite a weak word, make representation. So what they're trying to do in the second paragraph is capture the intention of, I think, just about everybody who's been associated with this, that it be an advisory body. So what word do you choose? I suspect they've uh, steered away from advice just because it's used elsewhere in the Constitution to deal with the relationship between ministers and the Governor-General. And representations is quite a weak word. I don't think it uh, means anything more uh, dramatic than advice. On the contrary, I think it, it probably means less. Um, but it's a word that we might find uh, changes. I mean, if you cast it around in your own mind, what word would you use instead of recommendation? Instead of representations, you might say recommendations, for example. Um, so there's a number of different iterations that you okay. might um, choose for that for that sentence. Greg,
2: look, uh, the one thing that's absolutely clear about the voice is that it's purely advisory. Uh, it can't make laws, it can't break laws, it can't force its representations to be implemented. So, the famous line about the uh, third house of parliament is absolutely fatuous. So, yeah, this is an advisory body, uh, it can give advice, its advice can be rejected, its advice can be adopted, its advice can be left on the table. It's really up to parliament. So, again, I don't, I don't see any great, well, if you support the concept of the voice, you're necessarily going to have something like the second paragraph.
0: If it's enshrined into the Constitution, does it mean Parliament has to listen to its advice? Does it have a mandatory quality at all?
2: Uh, No. I mean, it can make representations. uh, Parliament gets representations from all sorts of people. It gets representations from parliamentary committees. It gets representations from law reform bodies. It gets you know, representation from cranks in Mosman. Uh, there's no obligation on Parliament to take the advice in the normary, normal course of parliamentary business. Yes, it would listen in the sense that Parliament listens to uh, all sorts of bits of advice, Uh, But there's no requirement to act on it in any way.
0: They're not in the constitution, though. Like the Minerals Council makes advice, you know, they're not in the constitution. That's my question, I suppose.
2: Well, just because you're in the constitution doesn't mean you're absolutely going to be heeded. I mean, the parliaments in the the constitution, the high courts in the constitution, yes, uh, they have particular functions. But as I say, if you look at the whole of our system, which grows from the Constitution, there are innumerable bodies. And just because you're in the Constitution doesn't give you a blank check. And I think one of the things that people forget in this is that the voice is going to have an enormous amount of responsibility on it. So if it starts off making crazy recommendations, uh, it will effectively become incredible. And that, that's a real discipline on it. So yeah, I don't see it as being in some way a constitutional hunter-killer submarine.
0: Um, now, Cheryl, can let's say the, the voice does make representations, uh, and we've just heard they can Parliament can choose to ignore it. In other words, there's no doubt about this, is it? Parliament will have a veto power. Well, it doesn't have a veto power. It just doesn't just doesn't
1: pay any attention if uh, mm. if it if it uh, or it pays attention but decides not to uh, accept the advice or the or the representation. Uh, I think that's crystal clear uh, on the wording. I think the word representation imports that, um, and I think also that if anybody went back then to the um, to the foundational ideas that uh, fed into this provision, um, it would be endorsed just in the way that Greg uh, has said.
0: Okay, and I'm going because I'm going to assume you have answered that in a way, Greg. Um, the key question seems to be emerging: uh, exactly what laws would be the subject of this advice to Parliament from such a body? Now, Greg, could you tackle that, please?
2: Well, look, there's a, a range of options you could have. I mean, you could have the current one, uh, which is very broad. Uh, the main alternatives are executive and legislative action and any legislative action. Uh, There are some people who think it shouldn't have executive action in it. There are certainly people like Frank Brennan, uh, who is no mean player in constitutional discussion on this, who says that it should be confined to laws of special relevance to Indigenous people. Uh, I have heard it said some people saying, look, it really should be in relation to new laws. All of those are different positions, Uh, they will all be, I think, advanced and fought out in the referendum process. I think the thing that's necessary is that we come to an absolutely clear understanding and uh, it's an understanding that can be sold in referendum. I think we learned in the Republic that overreach is problematic. So this is a discussion to be held, but there are different points of view.
0: Cheryl, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think... um
1: that we need to go back to the purpose of having this provision in the first place. It's supposed to do two things. It's supposed to be symbolic and it's supposed to make a practical difference to government policy in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, which uh, has not been stellar in the past. So I don't think it's sensible to draft a provision that unduly confines the uh, representations that the voice may make. I mean, it's not mandatory. They may make it. Uh, And as Greg says, they'll be constrained by practicalities as to what they absolutely do. Um, But it's to cast the, the net a little wider to deal with matters relating to ATSI peoples seems to me to be entirely appropriate. Now, I'm sure there'll be debate about that, but then we should... Um, argue that through and demonstrate why this seems to be a sensible way to go.
0: I noticed the Prime Minister at Gama, at the Gama Festival, said uh, that, quotes laws which affect Indigenous Australians would be subject to the voice. Then he later said laws that directly affect Indigenous Australians. It's a sort of a distinction I don't think has been widely picked up. Um, I wonder what you think that might refer to, Cheryl Saunders. Uh, might it relate to Section 51 of the Constitution, which says that laws could be passed which related to race, obviously referring to Indigenous people? It is, I mean, this is, this is very important, isn't it? This, trying to be specific about this.
1: Yeah, it probably is. But, I mean, and it's a technical point, too, uh, to be discussing on radio in a sense. But you're right, there is a provision in the Constitution the race power, so-called race power, that allows the Commonwealth Parliament to legislate specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Now, the narrowest view of what the voice might do would confine it to legislation under that provision, uh, or perhaps legislation under that provision plus uh, the territories legislation. Uh, But there's all sorts of other... um, Aspects of public policy that might have a bearing, whether you describe it as direct or not, on Indigenous people. Think, for example, of the way in which uh, we adopted special measures during the pandemic to protect Indigenous Australians from um, the the, the virus reaching them because it was going to have such serious health effects. That's the sort of thing that you might expect a voice might be quite useful in relation to, Uh, but it's not passed under the racist power. Uh, Greg, yeah. Well, look,
2: there there are a whole variety of different considerations here. One is, you know, that of effectiveness, which you know, Cheryl is talking about. Uh, one is that of salability. So, yeah, you know, having been, you know, on the uh, statutory yes committee for the republic referendum, I know all the things about how to lose a referendum, and none of the things about how to win. But I'm very, very conscious, you know, remembering the misuse that was made by uh, monarchists of the draft. So, any attempt, there will be every attempt to exploit that. So, you sort of think of that as one of the factors. I mean, the third factor, funnily enough, is a sort of constitutional elegance. So, the, the current proposal has you know, three clauses. You know, there are those who argued that if you put it into fifty one twenty six, the racist power, and remodeled it, you could do it much more efficiently. That's probably something that only people like Cheryl and I would be interested in. Uh, but you know, the big question, the two big questions, I think, what is the width needed for it to be effective? If it's too small, that's a real problem. And secondly, you know, looking down the track, how do you sell it a referendum?
0: Yes, and and just let me tell listeners that my guests are Cheryl Saunders and Greg Craven and we're trying to really clarify some of the issues thus far um, in terms around the voice. Um, As various texts have come through and I certainly was intrigued by myself, what might be the scope, just extrapolating out from what you're saying, both of you, I mean, it could be anything from domestic violence to land rights but it could also be fiscal policy, foreign policy, immigration. Couldn't it, I mean, that would be, could be pertinent to Indigenous peoples, Greg Craven.
2: Yes, that's true. I mean, you could, obviously Cheryl's right. You can have things that are not explicitly confined to Indigenous people, which could affect them. Um, it's really a question both of practicality and politics. Um, what is the width that is right that gets you into a level of effectiveness that you need, uh, and what is the thing that you can take it through to a referendum? So referendum no arguments are typically not necessarily good. They're designed to inflame, conflagrate, confuse and all the rest of it. Um, So when I look at those words, possibly a bit unfairly, I look at them and think, gosh, would we be able to protect them even if they're right from the sort of negative and highly problematic and irresponsible arguments we've thrown against them? So, yes, I absolutely take the point and it's, you know, Probably it's a hard draft uh, to confine the phrase, but I have those two concerns. But the one particularly about getting it up a referendum, which is really the thing that matters, is the one that you know, bothers me most.
0: Mm. Look, some critiques have emerged suggesting that the wording, particularly of that second sentence, and the fact that it would go into the Constitution, does lend itself to unusual levels of testing by the High Court. Do you both see that as flowing from what you've heard being drafted, well, there's nothing drafted yet, uh, semi-drafted thus far? First to you, Cheryl.
1: No, I don't, uh, for the reasons we've already given. I mean, I think it makes it clear that representations is merely... Uh, advice and advice of a relatively weak kind that the parliament and government can take it on board and do with it what they like. Uh, The court is uh, uh, very unlikely to be confronted with something under this um, sentence I think Uh, and if an issue were to be raised it would also look at the at the working documents that led into the um, into the uh, articulation of the constitutional amendments. So I know there's been a lot of claims about judicial review around, but I think it's deliberately drafted so as not to attract that sort of um, reaction, scrutiny. Greg?
2: Uh, Cheryl's completely right. Uh, And she could also testify that I'm probably the chief paranoid about uh, powers (laughs) of the High Court being extended. Um, There is no way... That uh, those sections can be used because basically uh, there's so much about technical plumbing. There's nothing in there uh, that says has lofty phrases about anything, there's nothing loose in the language that could be used. Um, look, this provision, if you're worried about that sort of thing, I think is High Court proof. And that's even assuming that the High Court would have any interest in doing anything other uh, than watching it work because it's in everybody's interest that this thing operates.
0: I will quote you from um, a a, a column that um, the Australian columnist Janet Albrechtson wrote. Experts warn that if Parliament attempts to pass laws that limit the matters on which the voice has to be consulted or the process of or timetable for consultation and the High Court decides these laws interfere with or hinder the scope of the voice's essential features as set out in the second sentence, the High Court will simply declare the relevant laws invalid. You just rebut that, do you, um, Greg Craven?
2: I I think that's absolutely wrong and I think in a column I wrote, I said that if I was marking a constitutional law paper that said that, uh, I would give it zero. Uh, So, if you look at that uh, sentence Basically, it makes it absolutely clear uh, that this is a purely parliamentary process. There, there are no implications uh, that can arise from this. Uh, there is no way in to that sort of thing. And I, I may say I would be interested to know who these legal experts are um, because Janet in that column didn't name them. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm basically not prepared to be too worried by legal experts who aren't even prepared to put their name to a view.
1: Cheryl? Yes, I agree with that. And I I actually think that this debate about what the High Court might do with this is a complete distraction. This is deliberately drafted so that it's not justiciable in that sense. And that means that it puts the responsibilities on the political process to make this work. Now, that's going to be no mean feat. And I think that a lot of our attention should be devoted to thinking what do we need in the Constitution to give this um, uh, voice a chance of being effective Uh, and what do we need to watch out for if and when the referendum's passed to ensure that it's implemented effectively and that the political process does its job.
0: Look, I understand in all the preparation three separate workshops involved a range of prominent constitutional lawyers uh, having been convened over the last few years. Do you think... Any different constitutional interpretations might emerge. What I'm trying to seek at is, is there a? Bo- Are we hearing the debate we could hear from constitutional specialists? I think this is something that needs to be asked, Greg.
2: Well, I, I think we need to get clear about who's talking. So, the government <laughs> has set up two uh, committees. Uh, one of which is to look at the. Uh, Basically, the campaign for yes and other is to look at the question to be asked. Um, they're the only official committees. Um, there's a third group, and I think that was referred to yesterday in the Sydney Morning Herald, that's uh, talking about the law. Now, that's just a privately convened group uh, on which uh, Professor Megan Davis, I think, is quite prominent. I would expect that what the government would do, because it's an early stage today, uh, is get know, some constitutional plumbers together to try and support those uh, two voices, uh, those uh, two primary working committees. But I think it's it's important to understand at the moment, uh, there isn't uh, a government official body out there doing that.
0: Right. Uh, Cheryl, do you think that there is a sort of a rumbling underneath that we haven't heard yet?
1: I don't. Uh, I should say that there have been
0: umpty two different
1: versions of this wording over the past five years, Uh, some of it much more complex, um, which uh, I think has been less desirable because it doesn't fit with the style of the Constitution and it's more um, elaborate than it needs to be. So I think that what's happened with these words is that they've been stripped back to the bare essentials. I've been part of some of those discussions Uh, online with constitutional lawyers and I'd be Pretty surprised if there's serious rumblings
0: anywhere. Professor Shireen Morris, whom we hoped could join us today, but she's lost her voice. She's been (laughs) involved, yes, (laughs) involved ironically in comparing and contrasting other nations' attitudes to indigenous rights. So she points to Canada, for instance, is quite interesting, um, which has an implied right uh, to um, uh, to uh, uh, rights. Now, are there models that you think? could be offered to us to help us, Greg Craven?
2: Look, I mean, it's always worthwhile looking at the international models. Um, The challenge always is, I mean, in comparative law that for every inch you move away from uh, the circumstances you're dealing with, you end up with about a yard away in in constitutional practicality. So, I I think it makes sense uh, to look at Uh, Canada, it makes sense to look at New Zealand. There's a bundle of countries that have um, provisions dealing with this type of thing. Um, But you take uh, all of these things into account, but you wouldn't be dictated by it. I mean, we have a very specifically Australian situation here. We have a situation where the constitution can only be changed by referendum which is unusual throughout the world and has to be taken into account. But, you know, I'm sure anybody who's looked at this has looked classically at New Zealand and Canada, some of the European constitutions as well.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: Cheryl, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think it's uh, very relevant to look at some of these places in order to understand uh, how such a process might work or to get some insights into how it might work. Uh, and I think we, for that we might look not so much to Canada, but maybe even to the Scandinavian countries where there is uh, um, sort of an advisory body uh, of a similar kind. But I very much doubt that there's a useful provision in the constitution of any of these countries that you could look at and say, oh, can we use that to develop our own voice provision? Mm -hmm. Uh, As Greg said, this is a very unusual and unique situation here. And this provision, the idea the very idea of a voice has been drawn up with Australia's uh, distinctive constitutional arrangements in mind.
0: All right, look, final question. If it failed at a referendum, could the voice be legislated instead? Is it only via a referendum that it can go into the constitution, Greg Crave?
2: No, you could pass legislation under the racist power and other enabling powers to set up an Indigenous voice. I think the, the fatal weakness of that is that even though you could set it up, it wouldn't be in the constitution. the constitution has two values here. Uh, One is it carries an enormous symbolic payload. Um, Now, people say they don't care about symbolism. Symbolism is is important. The monarchy is symbolic. There are all sorts of things that are symbolic, but they're valid. Uh, The second thing is if you put it in the constitution, uh, you're saying that this is so important Uh, that it is part of our constitutional structure and it means the voice can't be abolished except by referendum. Yes, it can be ignored. Yes, if Parliament thinks it's wrong, it doesn't have to implement it, but uh, it becomes a constitutional institution and that's what Indigenous people want. They don't just want the symbolism. Uh, They actually want the reality as well.
0: And, Cheryl, I'll ask you and also propose something that a listener has said. What about the Malaysian constitution, which is quite interesting, I gather, and in, as a model?
1: Well, I'm not aware of exactly what it says, so I'm happy
0: to okay. we'll
1: have a look at it and respond to your listener if they want to send me an email.
0: Good. No, well, I'll come back to that. I might refer to that next week. But, yes, the notion of it being legislated rather than um, passed by a referendum?
1: Well, this whole debate began with a search for constitutional recognition. Of course, it can be legislated, but it wouldn't be constitutional recognition, and we would be continuing uh, that particular search. I think that it's very important to have it in the Constitution for symbolic reasons and for practical reasons. I think giving it the status Uh, of being in the constitution and in the constitution with the express endorsement of the Australian people uh, is very important for the purposes of making the voice effective in the longer term.
0: All right. Well, look, thank you both very much indeed. Um, I I hope that does clarify things. It does for me anyway, um, for listeners. So I do very much appreciate your time, Cheryl Saunders and Greg Craven. Thanks, Geraldine. Thank you. Uh, G- Cheryl Saunders from the University of Melbourne, Greg Craven, who uh, was Vice-Chancellor of the Australian Catholic University. Um we will, in the next couple of weeks, be returning to almost a sort of part two of this discussion, which is the nature of the voice, the bodies. There's an enormous amount of work being underway, as you must have heard people like Marsha Langton and Tom Karma talk about. So that is very much a sort of set of decisions for the Indigenous people. So we'll return to that in the weeks to come. But do let me know what more you would like to know, because this is a long debate we'll be having or a long conversation, I think that um, will require the best of our energies. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.